Dave said, anyone who, uh, children ages three and four, if they would like to uh, head over there for Children's Church, they are most welcome. And uh, as, as kids are moving in that direction, uh, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we, uh, we, we do not want to be those who, who hear your word without truly listening. Because we know that in your word is life. And so, Father, we ask that you would help me as I speak to speak in a way that is faithful to you and is clear. And that you would help us as we listen to truly hear whatever it is that you are saying to us. You would be honored and that we would be changed. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are two truths that we live in tension with. We want to be known, and yet we are afraid to be known. Both of these are true, and we are in tension between both of them. We want to be known. I remember when I was in a grocery store in the cereal aisle and I saw a mom with a cart and a couple of kids and one kid was just kind of on the floor kind of moving around and at some point this kid just yells to the whole aisle, everybody look at me! And I was just thinking, she's saying the quiet part out loud. Like all of us kind of know that feeling, at least in some way. We, we want to be seen. We want to be known. I mean that's part of why some of us do social media like Instagram. Look, look here why some of us work hard to kind of achieve something at work. We, we, want, we want to be seen or known in some specific way. When we are sometimes struggling in a relationship, what is our frustration? You don't get me. I want you to hear me. I want you to see me. We, we want to be known. And yet we are also afraid to be known. We don't show everything on Facebook, do we? There are some things that we want to keep private. And, and part of the reason for that desire for privacy is because we know that the moment people know things, we're kind of letting go of some control. If you are a parent of young children, I don't know if you ever had the experience of when you're, you were pregnant and people asked, what's the name going to be? You know in that moment, if you share the name, you have to see their reaction. And maybe they'll say, really? And in that moment, you suddenly feel like you don't have that private control of naming your child like you did before. We, we want to keep some things on our own. Perhaps more importantly, we, we're afraid to be known because we realize that the closer people get, the more they know everything about us, especially those parts that are most vulnerable, the more opportunity they have to hurt us. And I know some of you here have experienced that in a very painful way, whether it is with a close friend or whether it is a spouse or a parent, where you have experienced someone knowing you and deeply hurting you, and you are not sure you ever want to be known in that way again. Many people struggle with ever being intimate with someone because there is that tension of both wanting to be known and yet being afraid to be known. Now I wonder, have, have you ever thought about the way that God knows you? 
When we talk about our relationship with God, more often I think we talk about how we know God. Like last week, remember the psalm was about struggling, about can I really trust God? But, but what about how God knows you? What about the way God thinks of you? Have you ever just sat back to kind of reflect on, on the, the reality that in a real way you are naked before God's sight? The psalm that David Luce just read, a psalm of David, is a psalm that is meditating on this very thing. It is a psalm written from the perspective of someone who believes what the Bible teaches, so he does not have doubts about that, like some psalmists sometimes do. He believes that God is real, he believes not only that, but that God is the faithful God who loves his people, including David. He believes that God knows him intimately. And he is unsettled by that knowledge. We have four stanzas here, and I'd really encourage you, if you can, to have that psalm open, because we're just going to be working through stanza by stanza and trying to look at this closely. It's just a beautiful psalm, and so we want to look at the language here. And, and so we have four stanzas, each of them about six verses apiece, so it's carefully ordered. And the first one, if we wanted to summarize it, I think really what David is saying is, Lord, I have no privacy for which, which might sound maybe overly negative. We can have a romanticized reading of this, but, but notice how he starts. Lord, you have searched me. Searched is not a very positive word if you think about it. I mean, when we're going through security check, we don't like to be searched by TSA. If, if a police officer wants to search our house, they need a warrant. It feels intrusive. We. To be searched means things that we have tried to keep hidden now being exposed. And that's what David says, Lord, you have searched me. Anything I wanted to hide, you have exposed. You know me. It says, you know when I sit down. God knows when you are sitting. Like right now, when you're sitting to rest, sitting to eat. Sitting sometimes because you aren't doing what you should be doing. Lord, you know when I rise up, rise up to work or to embrace or sometimes rise up to yell in anger. God knows. You discern my thoughts. God sees your best intentions, the dreams you have. And he also sees those thoughts that you wouldn't want even your closest friends to know. You are acquainted with all my ways. God sees the ways that we're proud of, the ways that we want people to know. And he sees those aspects of ourselves that we even try to hide from our own eyes because we're so ashamed. And not only does God know that, he knows so well. Look at verse 4. It says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Do you have friends like that where when you're about to say something, you can catch, you see their look at you, and they already know exactly what you're going to say. That's how deeply God knows us. And, and, and the knowledge that God has is not just kind of this removed, I'll just kind of leave you to do your own thing. No, God has opinions about what we are to do. He, he guides us. Notice verse 5. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Do you feel the ambivalence of this? On one hand, that, that sounds comforting. God, 
protects. But to hem in feels maybe to David even a little claustrophobic. Everything I do, you are involved in. Let me ask you, as, you, as we reflect on this, how does this sit with you? How do you feel about the idea of any person knowing you so completely and intimately as that? How do you feel about the idea of the God of the universe who made all of this, the God who loves what is good and hates what is evil, the God who is ultimately the one whom, before whom we stand as him being our judge, that God knowing you so utterly so that you are naked before him. How does that sit with you? David is freaked out. But verse 6, it says such knowledge is too wonderful, but that word wonderful, we should understand that word wonder. Wonder means I can't get my mind around it, and it can mean positive, like, wow, it's so amazing, I can't get my mind around it, but it can also mean like, oh, this is really Difficult, And that's what David is saying here. This is too difficult for me. It, it's overwhelming. I can't withstand it. Do you, do you get that? Do you understand why, why David might say that? Do you, do you feel even a little bit that, that feeling of claustrophobia of, is there any space for me if, God, you are so intimately connected? Or maybe the fear of, God, if you really see everything, everything, everything about me, how could you possibly stick with me? What do we do with that knowledge? Here's, here's what David does. He, he tries to run away. That's what the next stanza is about. Some of you probably have seen, you ever seen the, the Southwest commercials, the wanna get away commercials? They're usually pretty humorous. I remember there's one that takes place like in some sort of situation room, everyone's wearing military garb. There are screens everywhere and clearly there's some intense thing taking place. A meltdown is gonna happen. And for some reason they need the general's password, which doesn't really make sense, but this is where the commercial takes us. And so the general is like pausing for a second because it seems like he's worried about something. And finally he says, password, I-H, a T E J or E M Y J O B one. And and the people like read it out, I hate my job. And of course, right after that the tagline, wanna get away and and we get these commercials because there are certain times where something's exposed about ourselves that that our response is we wanna hide. We we want to get away from that level of knowledge. And that's what David is saying. Notice what he asks in verse seven, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee? I want to flee from your presence. And in his mind, he starts going on various journeys, trying to imagine what it would look like to get some space from God. If I go all the way to the heavens, if I climb Mount Everest and I get to the top, I find you right there. If I find some cave in the deepest of seas, you're there as well. If he, he travels across the globe, maybe he starts on the, on the east of the rising sun, maybe in Japan, and he keeps traveling all the way to the west, maybe to Spain. Every step along the way, he says, you're still there guiding me and directing me. 
I mean, this was Job's discovery. I mean, Jonah's discovery. Do you remember the story of Jonah? God tells Jonah, I want you to go and preach to the Ninevites, which is a few hundred miles northeast. And he gets in the closest ship to go all the way west to Spain. He, it says, is fleeing from the presence of God. And yet, as he's on the boat, and as he goes into the water, and as he goes into the fish again and again, God is there with him. He can't escape from the presence of God. In almost desperation, you see in verse 11 him saying, Surely the darkness will cover me. If you, like me, are a fan of Tolkien, you might remember the character Gollum, who's this person who's gotten so disfigured by evil that he is almost unrecognizable from what he once was, and he knows that, and so he wants to hide. He spends as much of his life as possible in the darkest cave within a mountain so that he is not exposed. And I, I wonder if sometimes that's how we are towards a part of who we are. There are, there are aspects of ourselves that we try to just bury. We don't want ourselves to know. We certainly don't want others to know. We try to hide <coughs> them in darkness, and yet, and yet David realizes that won't work. He says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Wherever there is darkness, if you shine your gaze, you are light itself, and nothing is hidden from you. We cannot hide from God. It's a, a, a sinful human tendency that is incredibly common. If you remember the very beginning, if you know the, the stories in the Old Testament, from the very first time that humanity turned away from God, Adam and Eve disobeyed, and what do they do when they hear God coming? They hide. And ever since, that is our natural tendency. As we think of God, as we think of ourselves, we try to hide. Sometimes we try to hide by just keeping things private. But God sees even when no one else does. Or we try to hide by just not letting ourselves think about it. Not letting ourselves think about God. Not letting ourselves think about his existence. It's like we're little kids. Do you remember when you played hide-and-go-seek when you were three or four and you just thought if you did this, no one would see? That's, that's how we sometimes are. If we just don't think about God, then of course he won't think about us. But whenever we're not thinking about God, he is still attentive to who we are. We cannot hide from God. And that, that is what David comes to recognize in this second stanza. There is no way of getting away from God's always present gaze. And so when we finally come to this third stanza, we have what I believe is in many ways a, a turning point. What we have here is David who is feeling troubled. He does what I actually see oftentimes in Psalms. He goes to things that he knows about God. He goes to moments of, of where God has done something clear. Oftentimes in the Psalms will be places like when God brought his people out of Egypt. And in our day, sometimes when we try to figure out who God is or think things through, we, we go to the cross and resurrection because we see God there. David doesn't do either of those. He actually goes to another place where God is clear, and that is his very beginning. Have you ever spent much time thinking about how you have come into existence? 
that sound like a strange question, but it's a little unsettling when you start thinking about it. But maybe only to me, but, but at least humor me. There was a time not that long ago when you simply were not at all. And then you were. Now, we try to kind of pretend that that makes sense to us because we just use scientific language to kind of simplify. We talk about a sperm meeting an egg. The DNA gets matched. The zygote forms. The cells are divided. A womb is filled with an embryo. And boom, you're born. No big deal. But it is a big deal, right? I mean, just because it's not just cellular matter. It is life that happened. And not just any life. Your life. A, a soul somehow came into being a person that would one day be afraid to speak in front of people or would one day have these great creative crazy ideas or would one day love that just happened it's it's a miracle and at the heart of this miracle david says is you oh god he says you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. This is not a denial of the biological processes. This is saying that as these things took place, God, you were there supervising the cellular division. You were there supervising my fingers being formed. God does not just outsource this to some third tier angel, or he does not just kind of trust it to random genetic mutations or whatever. God is there stitching us together, knitting every stitch, imparting upon us whoever we will be and giving us this sacred privilege of bearing his image. God formed you. And, and it's not just when we were being knit together in the womb. It, 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 it goes even before that. Before you were, my mom used to use this phrase, before you were a twinkle in your father's eye. And it's only now that I started realizing I didn't really understand what she was talking about. I tried asking, what, what does the twinkle in my dad's eye have to do with this? And she was vague for some reason. But before, before you even were anything, you were in God's mind. He thought about you. Notice how it says, when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. This is poetic language saying, before I even was formed, you already saw me. You knew me. You knew who I am. Before we ever existed, before this world existed, God already had in his mind the blueprints of who you would be. And, and not only that, but notice, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. He already laid out the map of your life. God is intimately involved in your creation, informing you in every aspect of you coming into existence. And for David, that knowledge is the thing that turns the light on. That knowledge fills him with a kind of awe. Verse 14 says, I am fearfully, and notice that word, it, it is what it sounds like, fearfully. I'm a little frightened by this idea. I am wonderfully, confusingly, overwhelmingly made. I 
I am in awe, God. And so for that reason, I praise you. It's not an I praise you, woohoo, this is so great. It's an I praise you as in like I acknowledge that you are God and I am just the creature. That really is the truth that David has been fleeing from. That's the truth that we are ultimately afraid of. That that we are just small, finite creatures who have very little control over our future, filled with flaws as we stand before the almighty God of the universe who sees all this. We are afraid of the reality that God is God and we are not. And yet David can't escape that reality. He he has to accept it. And I think part of the reason is just he is filled with awe. Verse 17 says something similar. How precious, which could be translated, how weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. When I think about not only me, but every single person you have formed, if I could count them, they are more than the sand. Lord, when I just try to think of how you think, my mind hurts. You are so far beyond me. You are God. And I am not. The awe compels him to recognize this. But I think it's more than just that that leads him to accept his creaturely status. As he is reflecting on on how God formed him, he comes to this realization. Lord, you get me. You understand me. See, One of the reasons we're so afraid to let anyone else know us is because we know we will be misunderstood. If we let someone in, we know sometimes they will try to fix us. They don't know who we are. They try to make us something we're not. And yet that is not how God is. When God comes in and when he sees us, he sees us rightly. He doesn't just see your failings. He sees your possibilities. He doesn't just see how broken you are. He sees who you are meant to be. And he loves it because he was the one who designed you from the beginning. He knows you. You know, one of my favorite parts about the the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, John, in chapter one, Jesus is introduced, and one of the dynamics that you see in this opening chapter is the number of people who are trying to get their mind around who Jesus is. Different names are used to describe Jesus, but what becomes clear is even as people don't know who Jesus is, Jesus again and again knows who they are. So he meets this this ruffian named Simon and immediately says, I'm going to call you Peter. He knows who this person's going to become. This other man, Nathaniel, who's a skeptic, Jesus says, I see in you someone who is an Israelite in whom there is no deception. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, "Before, before even someone spoke to you when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, we don't even know the significance of that, but Nathaniel did. He falls down and worships. You know me. Later on, a couple chapters later, the Samaritan woman, as she encounters Jesus and Jesus speaks to her, what does she say as she speaks to the crowd after she goes away? She says, he knew everything about me. Jesus knows you. Jesus is the one. God is the one who thoroughly, fully gets you. Anyone else, if they have too much of a role in ourselves, will cause us to lose ourselves. 
But the more that we come to know God, the more that we accept his knowledge of us and receive it and, and submit ourselves to it, the more we actually fully become ourselves. Because no one knows who you are better than God. And no one is more passionate about seeing you become the beautiful person he has created you to be than God himself. And so David realizes, I don't need to be afraid because you get me. Because you made me. And so at the end of this third stanza, do you notice what happens? It says, I awake. It's like up until this point, this reflection has been a fever dream of David. He has been stuck. He has been kind of turning around and around. And finally, God has brought him to see things clear. And he wakes up and sees rightly. And notice what he notices when he wakes up. I awake. And I'm still with you. And that word still, I'm still with you. You haven't left me, even as I strayed, even as I tried to get away from you. You still love me. You've forgiven me. I'm reminded of perhaps an even more dramatic moment in the New Testament where, where Peter, who says he's going with Jesus no matter what, but when Jesus is going to the cross, three different times Peter denies Jesus, saying, I don't know this man, I don't know this man. And then it says Jesus looks at him, and Peter weeps, and he runs away. He wants to hide. And yet after Jesus dies, after he rises again, what does Jesus do? He comes directly to Peter. And essentially is telling Peter, I am not going anywhere. I am still with you. This is why I died. This is why I rose again. Because I am committed to you, even despite your sin, which I have dealt with. I don't know if this is the case, but I wonder if even this morning, there might be some of you who in this season are in a place of, of maybe avoiding God. Maybe in some ways hiding from him. This has been a really hard time. God maybe has just been really confusing to you. There might be aspects of who you are or what you've done that you just are not happy with and it's easier if you just keep him at arm's length. It might even feel to you like in some real way, like Peter, you have denied your Lord. And what I want you to understand is that even if he feels enormously far, far away. You feel like there's no coming back. He's just calling you to wake up. To wake up to the reality that he is still your God. That he still loves you. That his son has died to forgive you. As you wake up, what he wants you to discover is he is still there. And he is for you. And this is what David comes to realize. I awake and I am still with you. And so we get to this final stanza. And what we have in this final stanza is David's just expression of pure devotion as he is finally coming to reality. This final stanza seems at first a little bit confusing because these opening verses 19 through 22 feel harsh, feel filled with vengeance, but if you look at them closely, there is not vengeance in them. David is not talking about his enemies. He's talking about God's enemies. 
See, David was not a blameless man by any standard. He was willing to ally himself with some really shady characters. If you study Joab at all, you notice that Joab was kind of David's hitman. He would kill without much compunction. He would use God's name, but he had no real allegiance to God. But David used Joab because it suited his ends. But no longer. David is saying, now that I know who you are, I want in every way to be completely allied to you, and I want to remove everything from me that turns me from you so that you might be holy, my God. Notice what he says. He says, O men of blood, think of Joab, depart from me. I have nothing more to do with you. Later on, he'll say, if they hate you, now they've become my enemies because I am so holy, devoted to you, I will let nothing stand in the way. And it's not just the people outside that he's worried about. How does he end? Notice, in the final two verses, his expression of devotion. Remember how this whole psalm began. Lord, you have searched me, and you've known me. And I'm not entirely sure what to do with that. How does he do speak at the very end? Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. I want you to know me. I want to be known. And I want you to know me. And I want you to have your hand in my life. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. One commentator said, David here surrenders to God's loving pursuit. And it's not a begrudging surrender. It's a surrender filled with hope. So as we conclude, what I would like to encourage, if, if you are in this place where you can pray this sincerely, to pray these very words in a time of silence, these, these words encourage us to pray with repentance. Search me, O God, I'm no longer wanting to hide. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any unrighteousness in me. It is a time that as we're reading, uh, praying that, it can lead us to confession, Lord, you see these things. I acknowledge them before you. And then lead me in the way everlasting is a prayer of hope for God to be the one who leads us in a way that is good. So I want to invite us to just take a couple of minutes. And if you can pray these words, would you please use them to guide your prayer? If not, I invite you just to use this time to turn to God and, and ask him to show you whatever you need to see. And then a couple minutes time, I will lead us in prayer. Would you please Spend some time in silent prayer with